Greetings to you, bread of life. The Lord be with you all this day. The great St. Augustine um, had a habit in his teaching and in his life of surrounding himself with friends at his table. Uh, he was a teacher in Italy and then a bishop in North Africa, and he would constantly bring people around his table. His mother, there were women, and they discussed theology, they discussed politics. And Augustine had rules for the conduct of the table. And the number one rule is this, you don't slander or speak evil or in any negative way to somebody not at the table or at the table. But if you spoke of somebody they're not there to defend themselves, you were dismissed. This is Augustine's number one rule. And he had, was a poet um, as well as a theologian, and he had inscribed a poem in the corners and the etchings in the, of the table so that people always knew that rule when they came. They couldn't speak against another person. We had to build up others. That same Augustine, in, early in his life, in answer to a friend's question, uh, wrote a letter, which is a, a book called um, On Lying, or Of Lying, where Augustine thinks through the nature of lies, of truth and falsehood. You know, things like, is a joke a lie? What if I don't tell the whole truth? Is that a lie? And he, and he ponders these things, and that book became a foundational for centuries and centuries in the churches, it thought about the ethics of speech and about lying and what was morally right to say. Um, this great Augustine, what a careful kind of scrutinizing thought around speech. Compare that to modern America where we are today, you know, rock bottom. Our speech, our conduct, it's concern for the well-being of others, it's truthfulness and untruthfulness is just a vacant. You know, we've lost any kind of grip of truthfulness at the center of society. Many ethicists have said that, that some commitment to truthfulness is necessary for society to survive. And we're in a desperate moment. So today we come to the ninth commandment to think about our Christian obligation to contribute to the language that's in our culture. So um, as we come to the ninth commandment, it's this in, in the words of Exodus, that you shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. Um, and I'll um, examine that here in three parts. So first, uh, we'll just look at the command and what it commands or prohibits. What does it tell us we can't do? A second, uh, we'll look at what does it envision and require. So you can, might remember from previous sermons in the Ten Commandments that each law has these positive elements to it. The law you shall not kill implied and required that we seek and preserve and help life whenever we can. And so this law about not speaking in certain ways has positive dimensions. And then third, I want to unfold a little bit of thought and reflection and pastoral exhortation as we enter into these final weeks of the election and a year that's been tense and that has been divisive. Okay, let's start with the law. What is it? Um, prohibit, you shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. Um, if you can hear it in this saying, you shall testify is um, language of a court, you know, of some kind of a prosecution. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on, um, on murder I, and uh, you shall not kill, I mentioned, you remember in the law in Deuteronomy 19, it was spelled out that if there was a manslayer, um, who fled and he was to be tried, there had to be at least two witnesses that corroborated the crime for the punishment to be laid down. In other words, it can't merely be on a rumor or one person's opinion. There's these protective barriers built in to, to keep somebody from being killed 
freely. And so this is a law that says, look, you've got to be um, two testimonies and they can't be false. Don't testify against your neighbor, against his life. In, Exodus, in Leviticus, it takes it up that way. Don't testify against the blood of your neighbor. Um, the speech has to be guarded. The classic kind of paradigmatic text for this is Ahab in Jezreel. First uh, Kings 21, uh, he owns this land in Jezreel, and a neighbor is Naboth. And Naboth, from what we know, has this parcel of, a, of land that's highly valuable. It's a vineyard, it's at the crossroads, and Ahab wants it. So he comes and offers money to Naboth for it. And Naboth says, no, that land belongs to my family. It's in the inheritance. I inherit it and pass it on. That's how families retained their income. That's how they uh, took care of their children. And so it's interesting because Ahab says he went home sorrowful. You might remember last week, if you listen to the Sermon on Coveting, the first move towards envy and towards coveting is sorrow at my neighbor's good. And so Ahab goes home sorrowful and there's Jezebel. Like, what, why, is your, why are you downcast? And so Ahab explains the story. And she says, well, don't be sad. So she commissions letters and has them sent to the elders of the land. And she says, draw up worthless men who will testify falsely that Naboth cursed God and cursed his king. They do it. Naboth is stoned and the land is stolen. I mean, it's a classic text because there's about seven commandments violated. In this one story, there's so many of the stories, there's even a theory that the stories themselves were written around these moral dimensions to teach the gravity of not obeying the law, not being a moral person. So theft and lying, it turns out, is that. It's kind of the gateway sin. It, it allows other kinds of sins and things to go on. Um, as you might know, Jacob lies to his father. You know, I'm your son Esau, he says, to steal the birthright. So out of jealousy, envy, and theft all come out of the lie. You know, Abraham's lies to, um, to Pharaoh to protect his wife ends up in falsehood that um, diminishes the, the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. And so there's this, um, this, this uh, prohibition from speaking falsely that we are to avoid because of its consequences. Now, um, we come second to what does the law envision or and what does it require of us positively? And I'm going to move over. You might remember that there are two lists of the Ten Commandments. One's in Exodus 20, and then the second one is in Deuteronomy 5. And there are differences. And this is one place where there's a significant difference. In Exodus, it says, You shall not testify falsely, or a lie is the word sheker. But in, but in Deuteronomy, it's you shall not testify worthlessly. Uh, sometimes people will put vain there in vain. But it's significant for two reasons that Deuteronomy makes that change. Uh, Deuteronomy is often more sophisticated in this way. The first thing that it does is that word for worthlessly, Shiva, is the same word from the third commandment. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Okay, so in doing so, it ties these two laws together. The one against um, the sin of speech against God and the sin of speech against my neighbor. To sin against a creature of God is to sin against God. It is to uh, cut into, it's to harm the creator himself. Proverbs has the saying, if you mock the poor, you insult your maker, his maker. It's the creator. He, he, um, he invests himself in us. And so when we harm 
our brothers and sisters. We always take something from God. So that's the really first significant change that Deuteronomy has kind of affected in this word change by pairing it with early in the law. But the second thing that it does is the word shiva here or, or worthlessness is a much broader word than falseness. It imagines a spectrum of speech that could be negative or damaging and harmful. For our Old Testament reading today, I didn't read from Exodus or um, Deuteronomy. I actually selected Leviticus 19. And I've tried to say a couple times that Leviticus 19 has eight of the Ten Commandments in it. And they're arranged in different ways and paired with um, certain kinds of activities. They imagine how these laws play together, how these moral conduct can damage a society. But as this little passage that we read developed, you could hear it. Don't lie. Don't speak falsely. Don't slander. It has these negative kinds of applications. But then it says, look, don't, don't bear up anger in your heart and hate your neighbor. Speak frankly with him or, or um, confront him and, and reason it out. And then finally it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The move in Leviticus is very significant in 19 from these kind of negative commands to the protection of a brother, of a neighbor. There's something about love that has to be uh, behind all of our speech and our conduct with our neighbor. Don't simply cease from harming him or withhold harm, but love, charity. The speech ought to have something in it of that nature. When we speak, there is in this um, way, this uh, depth to the way that we speak about others in lying and in slander. We can tell a half-truth about somebody. We can pass on something on the internet or an email that's half true or not fully true of somebody and diminish their character. I go back, remember at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned Augustine's book of lying. And when he does this, he puzzles through several types that are worth reflecting on of lies. The first he has is kind of that, that innocent lie. So he says, you know, the, harmfully, uh, the harmless social kind of falsehood. Uh, you're invited to somebody's home and they, they bake you a dessert, you know, this, this pastry, and you eat it and it's not good. And the host says, what did you think? And you say, oh, oh thank you, what a, what a treat. You know, it's so harmless. You, you, you're not going to offend or hurt this person by simply saying it was a treat. You know, it was nice of you. And so then your host says, oh, great, because I was thinking of opening a bakery. Okay, so now, I mean, Augustine, he has these kind of puzzles. Well, now your, your first falsehood now has deeper social consequences because you may have encouraged something. And so now you've got to go back and adjust speech. And you're always adjusting speech to attain more truthfulness. There's a labor to it. Augustine says, here's the second type of a lie or falsehood. It's the, it's the unnecessary truth. After church, I mean, now we don't meet together, but maybe on email, you, know, you send off an email or call me on the phone and say, that sermon this week, like last week, was senseless and poor. Okay, that could, that could very well be true. But Augustine says it's malicious, right? There's no context. There's no love in it. And Augustine goes on to say, look, a lot of what we say that's true was unnecessary. It's malicious. It's um, salving my own insecurities or anger or emotions. And very, very often, more often than we imagine, silence is the proper path. Just because it's true, we don't speak. Augustine uh, speaks of a third type, which is really important. It's the, um, the incidental, the accidental lie. And this can happen in a couple of ways. I, I tell 
a story or I tell something about somebody, but I withhold something that would keep that story complete. Right? I don't, I don't um, pad everything carefully with the way I speak. Augustine says this can be unintentional too. Uh, this uh, Amy, I had her point out an example for me. She catches these on Facebook. You know, somebody writes and says, oh, Facebook is not allowing anybody to post the Lord's Prayer on Facebook. You know, it's a great tragedy. Well, it's not true. And the person who posted it probably thought it was true. So Augustine says, look, these falsehoods, whether you knew it or not, they're partial truths, they're, they're manipulated, they spread these ripple effects of falsehood throughout the community. And so they're damaging in that kind of way because they haven't been truly faithful. They haven't been thought through carefully. If you're thinking, this is um, tiresome to think about, did I say this right? Did I not say this? Did I harm this person? If you think it's tiresome and difficult and tedious and tiring, then you're probably getting it right. You know, there's a, there is a virtue to laboring at speech because it's so powerful in what it does. I've learned that. I've I reached out to some people in the church. I started months ago, many of you know, in March and April, and I started to read and think about race and racism and racial oppression. And it got so nuanced for me. You know, if I say this, will this be offensive? Will this be true? And I started to say less and cautiously to the point that I simply withheld compassion from people in suffering. The labor to do this. And so, as Augustine said, now I had to go out in apology and ask forgiveness and retraction. But that's the nature of speech, friends. If we're not doing that, then we're not speaking well. There's a labor to it, to upholding speech, to neighbor, to retaining as best we can truthhood in the community, because the community depends on truthfulness at its core. Okay, third, let me just roll this out a bit into our political context. We're weeks from the election. Man, and people are fired up in our country in all kinds of ways. Politicians, news media, consumers, voters. And our speech must be guarded in the way that I have said. I say this strongly. I start with an example. When I, uh, 20 years ago now, um, almost, um, Amy and I moved to England and I started postgraduate school there. And the nature of the studies is we had a weekly or bi-weekly seminar. Some scholar from England or Europe would come in and present a paper, you know, and, and I'm just a, a kind of a young 30-ish evangelical, and I don't know um, the breadth of these scholars. They're not Christians, half of them. And they're going to come in the room and say all kinds of things, you know, about religion and faith and scripture. And the leader of this session, Gordon Wenham, some of you would know him, he used to tell us at the beginning of every semester, these are guests, honored guests. And we respect their humanity in everything we say. You may not insult or degrade. You may go for the argument, but when you speak, it must be gracious and it must uplift and it must honor the dignity of the person we've invited. And he would often ask the first question to model it. Thank you for this inspiring paper. And he could do it genuinely. And then it was so coded, you hardly knew it was a critique by the end that he'd said it. And that often engaged the speaker less defensively. It was a beautiful kind of thing. And I remember that modeling of speech, of avoiding the kind of personal conflict when we're trying to be truthful with one another. That, I think, is not a bad vision for how we engage ourselves in the weeks and months ahead and the way we speak and email and text and tweet 
God, if I could get rid of social media for the next four months, I would. So damaging because it's so fast, so impersonal. There's no that friction that slows speech down, scientists tell us. So here's some guidelines for your speech. Have you spoken anything that would degrade another person? Did you withhold something significant from the truth? Did you tell a partial story? Did you know if you were right about that claim, that news story, those statistics? These are hard. Did you know? Because if you don't, you could contribute to the escalation of falsehood. See the care that goes with it. A really good one is, am I sending this, posting this, saying this as a remote emotional salve to my unsettledness or my anger? I developed a rule years ago that I've been fairly good at keeping. I never send or email anything late at night unless it's gracious. If there's anything tense or anything controversial, I don't send it. I sit it on it overnight. And then I ask myself this question, will this help? Or is it simply getting this angst off of my chest? Is it for me or is it for society and truthfulness? And if I leave an email or a tweet or a Facebook post overnight, I almost never send it or have to be nuanced significantly when you're calmer in the moment. Don't send it in the moment. Don't say it in the moment. Put a hand on your mouth. Finally, I should just end with these words of Paul. You know, when he's talking to the community, put off malice and, and, um, and lying and all this speech and put on love. Don't say anything if it does not build up and give grace to those who hear. I mean, what a virtue. Does this magnify goodness in society? Does it bring grace to you? And there are truths we have to say to one another that are painful. But is it necessary now that I say it in the way that it would be received well? Am I adding to the climate of division in my culture or am I healing it in the way that I speak? I press this on you. I think there's a way to come back to it next week to keep us accountable for how we proliferate ideas, especially in a technological world where so much harm can be done. I'll close with this image that we have from our gospel in Mark. Jesus before Pilate and the Sadducees and the Pharisees accusing him. Right? They tried to bring up false witnesses to accuse Jesus and it says they couldn't find anybody. Some heard him say he was going to uh, you know, uh, tear down the temple, but then their, their arguments didn't agree. You know, they, they couldn't get anybody to convict Jesus on testimony for death. That's significant, isn't it, what the law required? They don't have anybody. So what do they do? They ask Jesus a question, are you the son of God? I am. And they say, what more do we need? Crucify him. They've bypassed the witness process, and they've used offense, they've used emotion to justify the murder of truth himself. I mean, that's the real irony, the depth of this passage, is that Christ himself is the truth, the way. John loves that, that image of Jesus as the truth. As he stands before Pilate, you know, he's, he's truth himself. And in falsehood, we the creatures crucify him. And we lie to get it done, because we don't want truth staring us in the face like that. I mean, that beautiful image, isn't it? And it rescues us Christians from falsehood and from lies. He's raised again from the dead as truth himself. And he sends us, this is John's favorite little phrase that he has in his gospel and his letters, the spirit of truth who will teach you. I mean, think about that. Like we don't need to be like the culture. 
when we speak. We just pray that the Spirit of truth would enlighten us and illumine us and help us. We have a mighty aid from the Father and from the Son to teach us as we speak, to renew us from our faults, to give us hope and love for those with whom we speak. And we have the example itself of Jesus Christ who saved us. Friends, let us give back our speech to the Lord and to the honor and respect of our neighbor. Amen.